Ideally, I get to talk about space and astronomy news here on my channel, but in reality, I have to spend some time dealing with science denialism in space and astronomy, but also climate change and COVID. There's a lot of issues that are currently facing us. And so I thought it would be great to talk to someone who specializes in dealing with science denialism and how we can work with it. So today I'm talking to Lee McIntyre. He is a philosopher of science and he has recently written a book called How to Talk to a Science Denier, and we get into it. How do we get to this problem? What are the forces that are driving the current level of science denialism, and how can we find our way out of it? All right, enjoy the interview. So, uh, you know, I think this is, I, I think I chose this interview, I, asked, I reached out to you because this is like an acute problem for me as a science communicator. Uh, I find that that people uh, definitely come to me, to my channel, looking for a fight, looking to deny science. <laughs> and, and yeah. you know, my response is, I don't, this isn't the channel for you. This isn't the place to come to. But, but what's going on? Like, what's happening? Why is this all happening? Well, pe people love to fight. They used to just fight over values. Now we're fighting about facts. Huh. And it's because facts have been politicized. Uh, I, I think for the most part, people, it, it's not that one day they wake up and question a scientific fact that they had accepted before. It's that they're driven to it. So they heard something from somebody. They've been polarized. There's a huge flow of disinformation out there. Not misinformation, disinformation intentionally created by people who want people to deny science. They profit or it's ideological or political. And so by the time they get to your channel, they're already pissed off, <laughs> right? Because somebody yeah. has told them that you're a liar. And, that, you know, I mean, so if it were just a dispute about facts, that could be overcome by evidence. But the, what the disinformers do is they don't just get them to doubt the facts. They get them to doubt you. They get them to distrust you mm -hmm. and to think poorly of you. And that's why they're ready for a fight. And it's, by the way, why it's so damn hard to convince them. Because if they don't trust you, why should they listen to your facts? The way you're describing it, they get them, is borderline conspiracy thinking talk yes yes and and in many cases that's the the other side sounds that way as as well so so what is the difference between your understanding of a a campaign to erode people's faith in or trust in in facts versus the conspiracy version where people come start with the conclusion sure. and get back to the you know it's a great question, and and I mean the 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 foundation to realize is that there was some work done by um, the Hoofnagel brothers and some uh, cognitive scientists, uh, uh, John Cook, Stephen Lewandowski, a few years back, to show that all science deniers reason in the same way, and that a very important step in their reasoning is belief in conspiracy theories. So, how dare I say? that there's this disinformation behind science denial because that sounds like a conspiracy theory and it sounds like I'm doing what they're doing, right? And then if I reply, well, but this is true. Well, that's what every <laughs> that's, conspiracy that's theorist what they says, would say. right? That's yeah. what they would say, right? So, so how do I get by this? It's to realize that what's really important, um, what's really distinctive about science is that scientists believe things based on evidence and they change their mind when there's new evidence. And so I think that, you know, especially to a conspiracy theorist, especially to a, a denier, what's really interesting sometimes is to point out that there is a real live conspiracy, not just a conspiracy theory for which there's no evidence because the, the shadowy people are so good that, you know, that they're able to hide all the, you know, the, the evidence. And that's just what they want you to think. No. There's publicly available evidence to show um, that this is going on. There was a story in the um, Wall Street Journal uh, a couple of years back that 
talked about, and another one in the New York Times, which talked about the fact that um, the Russian intelligence service is very, very interested in undermining Americans' trust in science. It's part of you know the larger campaign to you know th- throw us off base, undermining our truth, trust in our institutions. And science is a big one. There was a story in the New York Times, I think it was in 2019, called Putin's Long War Against American Science. And so they have troll farms. They have you know members of their uh, the GRU who are inventing this stuff and feeding it out because it creates chaos in American society. Most interesting story that I heard recently was uh, one in the Wall Street Journal, which, you know, this conspiracy theory that there were uh, microchips in the COVID vaccines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? yeah. And so this, this, is, this is a conspiracy theory. This is not true. There's no evidence for that. Well, I, the, this Wall Street Journal article chased down where that came from. That conspiracy theory was invented by the GRU, the intelligence service in Russia, in April 2020. Now, think about it. April 2020, months before the vaccines were even invented, they published an article in a propaganda arm, uh, English language propaganda arm of theirs called the Oriental Review. And it said that if there were any Western vaccines that were ever to be developed, they would hold... um, uh, Bill Gates held the patent on a technology that would, uh, um, you know, do all this crazy stuff. And then they, sh- at the bottom of that story, it said share on Facebook, share on Twitter, which people did. Right, of course. A month later, 20% of the American population believed it. <sighs> so there, there's your conspiracy, not a conspiracy theory. I mean, you didn't have to break into <laughs> CIA headquarters to learn this. It was in the Wall Street Journal. Some conspiracies are true. Some yes, some conspiracies are true. What what makes the difference between a conspiracy and a conspiracy theory is this little weird fact about conspiracy theories where if there's any shred of evidence they'll use it and if there's not evidence they'll say that's just how good the conspirators are that they can hide all the evidence. And and you know so how do you change their mind if even if you have the evidence, that that's the difference. So, so I'm, I, this is not a this is not a conspiracy theory. This is a conspiracy, right? An actual conspiracy. And and this technique, I mean, this is the this is the honed version that has been part of climate change denial, and and has its lineage all the way back to smoking causes cancer denial. Correct, correct. That that's right. Um, if you look at if you look at those early campaigns, the cigarette campaign was really the, the earliest, started in 1953. All they had to do was create doubt. They didn't have to show that cigarette smoking didn't cause cancer. They just had to get you to doubt it. And they rode that wave of doubt for decades while they sold cigarettes. They profited. Not all, Sometimes people want to profit economically off science denial. The fossil fuel companies certainly did that with their money that they you know, gave to undermine the reality of climate change for all those decades. Um, But sometimes the profit is political. Sometimes it's ideological. That's what the Russians are doing with American science. I mean, maybe part of it was economic. They had the Sputnik V vaccine. They wanted that to be the one sold all over the world. So the, the irony there is that they did such a good job of spreading their lies that Soon, Russian citizens didn't want to take the Sputnik Five, right? So that was trouble, <laughs> right? That even even Russians now are skeptical that that there's any value in taking the COVID vaccine. Um, so, I mean, the climate change is the one that I have the most personal experience with. I mean, obviously, I have personal experience with with moon denial, lunar landing denial, with flat earthers, etc. They seem harmless, although, uh, but it's the climate change denial, which is the one that feels most acute. And it was, it's palpable. Like when we started covering climate change stories in universe today, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, like a long time ago, people popped out of the woodwork and it would just be this avalanche of, of denial going on, of, of undermining, as you say, undermining the evidence, undermining, you know, making 
false claims, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it was just, it felt overwhelming. And it felt to me as a science communicator, it was, it was frustrating and really disheartening. Like it really hits you at the core of what it is that you do. Um, and, and it's taken a long time for me to come emotionally to the point where it doesn't, where I just keep, do, keep on keeping on. Right. And you just keep going and we just keep doing a thing and we just delete, 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 or ban, 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 whatever. Right. You're like, okay. Uh, you're clearly you're a Russian troll farm. Uh, we, you know, you, you know, we do not need to give you a platform on our, on our channel. And and, and that's exactly the right way to fight it, by yeah. the way, because yeah. the, the research on this shows that disinformation, misinformation, once it gets loose, certain number of people are just going to believe it. And so deplatforming the, you know, the, the disinformation, that's the best way to fight it. But it does kind of go to your core. It's kind of a gut punch for if you're an, a scientist or an ally of science. And that's what they want. I mean, it's coordinated. It's a coordinated attack. Um, and just remember, it's not done for no reason. There's a purpose behind it. That's why, you know, they're so virulent about it. Um, the, you know, and funded <laughs> and funded. Yeah. Right. Better funded than me. Yeah. You know, the, the exception there, I mean, I, I think that you should always look for who's profiting by this, you know, who wants you to believe this. Um, there's a conspiracy thing to say. Who wants you to believe? It? <laughs> Who wants you to believe this? Yeah, uh, right. Bill Gates, um, maybe. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but the the one the one that I never could figure out who was behind it was Flat Earth. Nobody's making a buck there. I can't. They don't seem political. They don't seem ideological. I can't really figure out. That doesn't seem like that's the Russians or you know some other state sponsored thing. So where did that one come from? Climate denial. That's coordinated right. by you know, political and economic forces. But sometimes, I don't know, maybe they just arise organically. I, I Maybe I don't have enough experience to know. The yeah, answer. so the, well, I mean, the, the Flat Earth one is, is, is based from religion. So that's its, that's its source is, is that essentially the, the, the people who have, who take the Bible and other religious documents literally have a bunch of problems with answers generated by scientists. And so there is a, uh, an attempt to discredit the big bang, the, the evolution, cosmodern cosmology, and even, even the actual shape of the earth itself. And, yeah, and the moon landing, which comes along with that because there's a dome and. How could yeah. You and, I've, and you know, and now we're again, we're, but we're into conspiracy. You can imagine that, that, that the Russians would want to undermine Americans' trust in the fact that the America went to the moon. Like that wouldn't that be delicious if Americans were no longer yeah, proud I, I of no their of their space. No, right. Right. And so right. we're so we're not gonna speculate, we're not gonna be making conclusions, you know, but you could do your own research and draw your own conclusions. <laughs> yeah. uh, um yeah. so okay, so I mean so we're that's how we got here. Yeah. And it and but that doesn't. I mean, it helps me go like, here's how you got here. Here's how you got into the situation. But but I know that I you have you tell a person. By the way, you are the product of a Russian troll farm, and you are they yeah. they got you. How do we get people back out the other side? What is the conversation that we can have to talk to science deniers to bring them back to at least some trust in science? Uh, first, you have to know that you're dealing with people in good faith, and that, that's difficult, right? I mean, the first thing to remember is don't let them spread their disinformation and get anybody new. So that's one reason to fight back, just so they don't have an audience, they don't have a platform. But okay, now if you're talking about the hard, the hardcore, if they're actually a Russian troll farm, you know, uh, person, you're never going to change their mind. Mm -hmm, of course, but 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 the people who um, Maybe I didn't believe it in the first place, but they're spreading. But the 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 target audience here, and this is what I discuss in my book, uh, how to talk to a science denier, are the believers. They're the people who have been duped. You know, the people who are the victims of this disinformation campaign. And the problem there is nobody ever wants to think that they've been duped. Mm -hmm. 
You know, uh, Mark Twain said it's easier to fool somebody than to convince them that they've been fooled. You know, they, they, so so how do you now? I mean, one way might be. I mean, look, if they're a good conspiracy theorist, you you might share some of that information about, you know, the Oriental Review and vaccines, et cetera. I mean, you know, show a, a good suspicious conspiracy theorist might be compelled by some evidence um, uh, that there's a disinformation campaign. It might work. What the literature shows um, is that sometimes you can convince them with facts. You have to handle it the right way. Hmm. Um, There was a study in Nature Human Behavior in 2019, um, which showed that you could use facts. Uh, that's called content rebuttal. And if you're an expert in climate change and you've got the goods, you know, go nuts. <laughs> but what they also showed is that there's something called technique rebuttal, which is that suppose you're an ally of science, but you're not an expert on you know any uh, you know given thing that somebody's denying. A study then you can study the reasoning pattern. The fact that they're going to rely on conspiracy theories or cherry pick evidence or rely on fake experts, et cetera. And the study talks about how to use that knowledge of their flawed reasoning to push back, to talk to them, not about the facts, but about how they're reasoning Hmm. based on the facts. So give me an example of this. That can work. Yeah. So give me an example of this. Like, let's say, you know, you're down for a family dinner and your cousin, uh, doesn't believe in climate change yeah and says like you know climate change has naturally happened and and this is normal and and so on how how do you use those kinds of techniques i mean it's a it's a neat term i like that that you're that you're going after because because in many cases they will have studied this and they will have all of the all of the cherry-picked facts ready at their disposal and the rebuttals to anything that you say as a layperson who's just you've just gotten sucked into the conversation that they want to have because they want to convert you too and then they have all the the armaments at their disposal to to get you and um so what is the technique that you that you use how would this play out in practice well what one thing that i do personally is because i'm a philosopher of science i'll just kind of ask them how they think science should work, you know, how, how for instance, hmm. um, you know, you talked about the, the flat earthers having their beliefs based on faith, but they don't say that. No, they'll say their belief is based on evidence. And then, you know, okay, so they're really ready to talk about Aristarchus or the Foucault's pendulum. They want to talk about that because they know what to say. What they don't want to talk about is when I say, well, wait a minute, why do you think science would have to prove its result? I mean, you don't have proof for your result, do you? Or, you know, when they claim to be such great skeptics, I'll say, wait a minute, you're relying on your experts, I'm relying on mine. We've got to have some way to assess who's more trustworthy here. But, you know, don't make it sound like you've got proof and you've got experts who are 100% right, because you don't know either you know and then maybe they'll say something like oh so nobody knows well okay maybe nobody can prove it but now let's start to assess the evidence you know how how likely is it so i'll st- I, I like to talk about i like to talk about the double standard of reasoning um so what's that uh conspiracy theorists they sometimes claim to be the greatest skeptics in the world but they don't really understand skepticism. I mean, because really they're quite gullible. I mean, they're skeptical about what they don't want to believe, but they're very gullible about what they do want to believe. They don't need, you know, anything other than the fact that somebody on their team said, you know, this this is true. And so just to, to ask questions like, well, why would you believe that? Or what's your source on that? Well, how do you know that he's reliable? Well, do you know that this person lost their medical license or did you know that this person sells products that, you know, compete, you know, alternative cure for uh, COVID and they make millions of dollars on their website, you know, to, to bring up things like that, to undermine the credibility of the folks that they're relying on. I think that's perfectly fair game. Um, it's, I, I mean, with climate change, a lot of the, um, 
pushback uh, uh, comes from, well, but what about this scientist? What about that scientist? And then, you know, you can drill down. Is this person a climatologist? You know, have have they done peer-reviewed studies? Where does the money come from? Sometimes you'll trace it back to a think tank that shall go nameless because I don't want to get sued. Um, that funds some of this research. Yeah. And they have a vested interest. And so, you know, so there's a way. Now, what I'm doing there is pushing back in a way that maybe is intended to make them feel stupid. That's not the right way to convince somebody. If you really want to convince somebody, the only way to do it, and there's not a lot of scientific literature on this, but the anecdotal literature bears it out, is empathy. People get their minds changed when they're talking to somebody that they trust. And the way people build trust is face-to-face conversations with somebody who's calm and respectful and listens. And it is the hardest thing to do when somebody is pushing your buttons and you don't know if they're arguing with you in good faith or not, and they're angry and they're accusing you of being a liar and all that. It's a really hard thing to have an empathetic conversation. Yet that's really the only thing that will work. And I think it's that that good faith part. That is your first gate. That's your first yes. decision. And and in many cases, people will get sucked into a argument with a person who isn't arguing in good faith. They're looking yeah. for easy wins. They're a troll. And yeah, and, and they're going to change what they say. To, you know, you'll, yeah. you'll refute something. They'll go, oh, well, what about this? What about that? They're, they're just... They're just in it to win, and um, and, for, and they're in it to to make you uncomfortable, to make you bleed. They they enjoy that's, watching that's you suffer, and I think that like like that troll, the ability to spot a troll, is like your is the number one key. If you can if you can figure that out and then disengage, you can avoid ninety percent of the and, frustrating conversations. Deplatform the, the troll. Yeah, deplatform the you know, trolls. Don't you know. get into a big public debate with them because then that just sucks in yeah, you know totally. other people. Um yeah. you know one one thing that I one question that I use that I hadn't thought of it this way. Uh, I thought of it more as a technique rebuttal, but it, it really is a way to sort of identify a troll too. Is that I'll say um, so you believe what you believe based on evidence. Oh, absolutely. Well, then answer this question for me. What evidence, if I had it in my back pocket, would be sufficient to prove you wrong? I mean, mm. what would change your mind? A shocking number of science deniers either can't or won't answer that question. Right. And maybe it's because nothing will change their mind. But if it's a good faith person, you see them struggle with that. You yeah. see them think, I mean, I've watched this happen. It's from my conversations with flat earthers who will, you know, kind of think, wow, wait a minute, what would change my mind? Mm-hmm. And and that's the first step, you know, in, in getting them there. Because if they can be convinced just how important it is to be able to answer that question and they can't, it might make them begin to doubt a little bit. And it is it is interesting. Like, I, like I was in a... Um, I don't know if you heard of this technique called street epistemology. Yes. Which, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. So I was a guest on a street epistemology podcast, and I a- Anthony Magnabosco. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, yeah. Anthony wasn't there, but but a, a different somebody else. Yeah. 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 And I d- had to defend one of my beliefs. Yeah. Um. And and at one point they asked me like, you know, what would it take to convince you that you're wrong? And I did, like I listed ten pieces of evidence. Each one would completely make me remove my belief, and it's it, it, because it's easy. It's very easy for me to say what is the and you know and when you think about our lives and all of the things that we go through and all of the 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 d- understandings we come to based on evidence. The second we receive the right kind of evidence, we will change our position. What's wrong with my fridge? The compressor's broken. Swap out the compressor. It's still broken. It wasn't the compressor. My belief that the compressor was broken on my fridge was wrong, and I will and I will lose it, and I will gain a new belief, which is that maybe it's the 
whatever. I don't know what goes on inside a fridge. Um, Compressor might have still been broken, but that wasn't sufficient to explain it. Yeah, right? exactly. Right. Yeah. And so, and yeah. so you you have this belief. And you take action, and now a new new facts inform you, and you change your mind, and you you and so I think I for I think if you can get to a place where all of the things that you believe you you believe you have a really good chain of evidence that's gotten you to the point that you believe what you believe, and you also feel ready and willing to give up that belief at the drop of a hat, Bravo. it is so yeah it's so freeing because now you yeah. move through the world optimizing your existence based on what you think is the most available facts you have it. available to you. Yeah. I, I love it because that's, I, th I wrote an earlier book called the scientific attitude and what you just described, I think is the scientific attitude. You care about evidence and you're willing to change your mind when there's new evidence. So when people would say to me, you know, I try to convince me to, to take the vaccine and they'd say, well, it hasn't been proven to be safe. I'd say, well, nothing can be proven to be safe, even aspirin, you know, well, well, but, but, you know, you're, but you're taking it. So you must think it's been proven to be safe. And then I can say, no, wait a minute. I have sufficient evidence to make me believe that it's safe. Well, and, and actually I'm doing a comparison, right? Because I don't know that with hundred percent certainty, but I don't have to know that with hundred percent certainty to make my choice because, you know, this is the risk of me getting COVID and being wrong about COVID, and this is the risk of me taking the vaccine, guess which one I'm going to go for, you know? So, so maybe you're right that they're, you know, 10 years down the road, they're going to find something wrong, uh, you know, about the vaccine. But was I still smart to take it based on what I knew at the time? Yes, it was still rational. That doesn't, and it's really hard sometimes for science deniers to admit that science can be wrong make a mistake and move on. And that doesn't mean that you were foolish for, you know, believing whatever you had sufficient evidence for at the time. So there are, and that leads into another question, is that there are things that are good for science, but sound weak in in perspective. And you just gave an example of one of those, the willingness to change your mind when when new evidence comes in. And and we see this in the media all the time that we thought uh, that Saturn's rings, to use our example, um, Saturn's rings were caused, have been around since the age of the planet. And also we think that maybe Saturn's rings are new. And the evidence has just come in in the last couple of weeks that it turns out that that the tilt of Saturn explains that it probably destroyed one of its moons and tore it apart into its rings. And so... And so you would have to explain. We used to think this other thing, but now we're wrong. We were wrong, and now Isn't we believe this new beautiful, thing. Beautiful thing of science, but but you're right. It sounds it sounds weak. Yes, and and it it's not weak though. Uh, uncertainty and the ability to change your mind based on new evidence is is a strength. Totally. Yeah. It, it's a strength of science. I, I one of the most uh, important books I ever read about science. Uh, it's by uh, Stuart Firestein called Failure. And he's got an earlier one called Ignorance, where he argues, <laughs> I joked with him one time that his next book should be called Catastrophe, right? That failure is the hallmark of science, the ability to make a mistake, learn from it and move on. You know, as long as it's a good faith mistake and not fraud, that's okay. That's how science works. And, you know, we, we, Move ahead. Think about the COVID vaccines. You know, at first they thought that this was going to keep you from getting COVID. And it can, it, you know, in a statistically significant number of cases. But it's not a guarantee that you won't get COVID. And then, well, you know, then the story came, okay, well, it won't keep you from getting COVID, but it will keep you from dying, you know, on a ventilator in the hospital. But then some people who were double and triple vaccinated had that. And then, you know, the story changes. Okay, well, we now know that it makes you um, much less likely to get COVID and much, much, much less likely to die of it. But it's not a guarantee. That's okay. That's just how science works. And I mean, the people who went into it thinking that it was a guarantee, they weren't listening. I, I, I read a, a Reddit page the other day and somebody asked this question about, you know, why 
why did the scientists lie to us when they told us that you know this was going that we were never going to die if we took the vaccine and the answer was nobody lied to you you were just too stupid to understand what they said now you, we wouldn't say that to a denier right that that's insulting that's not going to work but i had to chuckle because it made um i shouldn't admit that in public but i chuckle at that because it made it clear yeah, they weren't lying to you. They were just wrong. And there's a distinction yes. there. Yeah. So, and, and I think like science is best when you, and this is like a conversation I have with people about, about the purpose of like the way science works, that science is attempting to essentially disprove hypotheses. And, and, and whatever you fail to disprove is the one that seems most likely, but you still, you're just waiting to disprove that hypothesis. And, and so when I, when we do stories about the Big Bang, etc, you get a lot of people saying like, oh, you know, scientists are, are dogmatically dogmatic in their belief of the Big Bang and, and dark matter and, and so on and so forth. And, and it's really hard to get across just this core concept that a scientist can't wait to change their mind. They can't wait to be proven wrong. But that, it takes evidence. But it takes right? evidence. Yeah, it takes evidence it, it, to be proven it wrong. It takes yeah. evidence to do it. I mean, they're, they're not, you know, that's the thing I loved about Kuhn. You, you don't give up one paradigm to, to believe nothing. You give up a paradigm because there's a better one that's competing. And sometimes waiting for that better paradigm. But I mean, they're, I mean, sometimes scientists are dogmatic. You know, you read the, especially the history of geology just scares the hell out of you all these times when they, you know, they, they just wouldn't change their mind. But, the, but eventually when the evidence is sufficient, they will. And here's the interesting part. I've always thought when they don't, they're no longer scientists. Then yes. they're ideologues, right? Yes. That, because that's your union card for being a scientist to look at the evidence and say, I was wrong and I'm willing to change my mind on the basis of it. And the people who say, oh, that's weak. My reply is, so what's your plan? What else have you got that's going to work better than that? I mean, ideology, your own dogma, gut instinct, trust, faith. I, I don't know what, what I'm supposed to do, right? Um, I had to make a decision about the vaccines when they first came out. Um, I'm not a vaccinologist, virologist. I didn't know, but I, but I trust the scientists who were doing it, and they might make fun of that. Yeah, but deniers trust scientists too about a million things. Every time they drink milk that's pasteurized, they know it's not going to kill them, or they fly in a plane to the Flat Earth Convention, right? They're trusting scientists. They just don't trust them about the things that they've been radicalized over. That's the double standard. That's the trouble, I think. So is that science's, like... Like the scientific community, I think, is is trying to straddle this. They're trying like there is the reality of how science works, that you are looking for evidence, that you are willing to overturn your beliefs as soon as new evidence appears, that you are uh that you are unconvinced, your findings are provisional, et cetera, et cetera. And and that goes against human intuition and behavior about what's the best way to leave your life. And I think the scientific method was this incredible discovery back whatever in the in the 1400s, 1500s, the, to actually properly follow the scientific method when it extended beyond what you could easily test, uh, you know, drop things on your foot and they hurt. But later on, you're like, you know, the experiments get a little more weird and you're, the results are uncertain. And that's where science takes over. And and I think that like the scientific community has trouble communicating this because they end up on the one hand, yeah, you need that uncertainty. You need this, you know, the, nothing is for sure. We don't know. This is what we think today. We're going to change our mind tomorrow when we gain new evidence. That is the best way to do science. And yet it runs counter to the way human beings want to hear information. Yes, but I people I don't want certainty. And they, they people can't want certainty. Have it. Yeah, they exactly. Can't have it. Yeah, and I feel like it's best for us to teach to embrace that, 
over the over the long term, we will create a society of people who know that nothing is certain. That because that- because if the because once you pretend that you've got certainty, and then you don't, you've lost credibility. Yeah. Then then there's trouble, right? And and I, I think that scientists should not be embarrassed. Should you know? Should stop feeling like, oh, we want to be able to offer you certainty, or you know, we're almost certain. I I, I just I, I think they should celebrate the idea that they've the flex that they've got the flexibility of mind to change their mind in the basis of new evidence. That's again, that's what I think is really the the hallmark of uh, of science. What I call the scientific attitude, because without that, you're you're really you're just caving into cognitive bias and dogma and instinct and you know this human tendency to want to believe that your theory is true because that's the thing that's going to make you famous i mean and, and you know the the nice thing about science too is it's a community enterprise it's social so you don't just have to count on any individual scientist having this scientific attitude the profession does and they're more than happy to show some other somebody else's theory is wrong and so this i like to joke it keeps scientists honest even if they were honest in the first place because if you don't try to disprove your own theory you know that everybody else will do it and that'll be humiliating yeah and i I bring that up quite a bit that i promise you that for every scientist who has make who has discovered something new about dark matter or dark energy or whatever there are 100 scientists attempting to find every possible hole and mistake in what they've said because that's how science works and but 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 like back to my original point there how do i like how do we get the scientific community to feel proud to declare things with uncertainty and not try to to half measure it because it's the half measure that destroys the credibility. The, you know, the, the interesting thing is, in my experience with scientists, they 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 do embrace that when they're talking to one another, when they're talking to somebody who's not attacking them. Yeah. You know, scientists are so this is part of the problem with science communication. You put a scientist out in front of a public audience and they won't say, we know this with certainty. They'll say, we know this to a you know, 95% degree of certainty, except for this. Right. And, and then, you know, people go, oh, really? I thought you said that you knew it. So, I mean, so the, the, the problem is, I think that scientists feel pulled by that public's desire for them to be certain and them understanding how science really works and that they can't say that, but they want to come as close as possible, especially when lives are at stake. Right. Um, And there are places, there are terrific places out there that teach scientists how to communicate better about science. The Alan Alda center at Stony Brook is one, the center for public engagement with science at university of Cincinnati is another. And I think everybody should read Stuart Firestein's book failure. I mean, that really kind of makes you proud to be uncertain, to make a mistake, you know, to understand it, 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 here's what it does. I don't know about you, but I was raised in the era when my elementary school science education was really science appreciation. Yes. We were, aren't we lucky we were born into the era of all these geniuses when all truth has finally been discovered. Yeah. And what you can do is learn the results of their findings they didn't yeah. train us to think like a scientist or to want to be a scientist. They should have taught us how to make mistakes, how to say, well, let's go gather some data and learn from it. I would have gotten more from that. I didn't learn that till I was in high school and had a really good science teacher. I didn't properly understand the scientific method until I was yeah. in my 20s. Yeah. And so I was a science fan the way you described it, I think that's exactly yeah, right. They, I was they, too. Science, yeah. look how cool science is. Look how they cool know science everything. is. Yeah, exactly. And look then, what we've discovered. And then the yeah. day you figure out they don't know everything, you think, well, what the hell's yeah. the matter with them? I mean, Lister, you know, uh, uh, Copernicus, all of these people I can point to, you know, they got it right. How come you can't get it right? And then yeah. they get all embarrassed. But you read the history of science and you realize all the failures and mistakes. And that's yeah. how we learn. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I, it's almost like it's a two, it's a two 
pronged attack here. One is to, all we have to do is reform society so that people are taught to embrace making mistakes and this process of, of, of gathering evidence and changing your, your mind. We as, can do that, right? That's the right? first step. And then the second step is to completely change the way that science, science and scientists communicate to properly um, mesh into this understanding that of, of you know, that the, the evidence changes and, and, and our- And we'll all be dead by then, right? right. That once uh, all that- are, there, are there any nations out there that do it better? Um, Finland has a curriculum for spotting fake news and kind of their, their post-truth curriculum. I think, I think quite a number of nations do it, do it better on, on science education. I think what I want to say here is that we sometimes do it better. Um, because if By we're we, just talking about, mean... I mean, in the, in the United States, right. in, in the, you know, the, 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 yeah, sorry about that. Um, no, no, no. It's, you know, like Canada, we're 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 almost the same. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. We're your we're your with with better manners and hold the door for you. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, I the the thing that I'm impressed by are the times. So so we we can't wait for the next generation to save us. We need to do something about this now. And the thing I'm impressed by are the scientists now who have discovered that the, the curiosity is that they're this actually more compelling when they can be a little humble and show some uncertainty. I remember there was a um, there was a, a focus group done by uh, Frank Luntz, who's a hardcore Republican pollster, and he wanted to know what would convince people to take their COVID vaccines. And he so he got a whole group of, I think it was 20 vaccine deniers. I don't know if they were all, you know, Republican, how all that went out. But I mean, he was upset that this was becoming politically polarized and he wanted, you know, to help the GOP figure, figure this out. And so he, he did this focus group. And what he found is that what didn't work was opinion from politicians, politicians saying, you know, take your, take your vaccine. Um, you know what worked? A scientist came in and said, well, look, we don't know everything, but here's what we do know. Mm -hmm. That worked. The person who was humble and, you know, explained a little bit about what they didn't know, but that made him more credible on what they did know. And, you know, here's why we think this, you know, and he, he, we've done the studies and here's what we know so far. And here's what we would need to know to change our mind. At the end of that focus group, 19 out of the 20 decided, uh, said that they were more likely to get the vaccine. And the only reason he didn't get the 20th is because that person had to leave early. <laughs> I mean, so we can actually do yeah. this. Um, and I think the example, we don't have to look at the education curriculum, you know, overseas, we need to look at what good science communicators are doing right now uh, with the adult population. It's the science denial is really an adult problem. And we can train children to kind of inoculate themselves against this. And that's super important, right? Um, but we, again, we can't wait for them to save us. We need to um, have science communicators some of whom are scientists, some of whom are not, speaking unashamedly about how science actually works. And I think that that's the main thing we could do. And I think that will bring back some trust. And I mean, people people back in the 60s, you know, they say, well, well we trusted science. People trusted science, but they didn't understand it. They just, you know, look, we've been to the moon. Look at these geniuses. I mean, that's when I went to elementary school. That's what it was like. But now that there's more disinformation available on the internet, people are beginning to question things that they didn't used to question. But scientists have it within their power to now educate people about how science really works. And I think that's needed. But there is more. But at the same time, I mean, you say there's more disinformation. Like, like my perspective on this is... 
is that we are going through a shock, a culture shock, the likes of which we've only gone through a couple of times in the past. The the, the creation of the Gutenberg Bible, um, agriculture, the Industrial Revolution, like there hasn't been many times that <clears throat> that human beings have changed the way they interact with each other. And this one is, is, you know, you now instantaneously can have a conversation with anyone on planet Earth. And that's and and your cultures are going to come into clash with each other instantaneously. And this is a new virus, as it were, and we we need to create a new immune response as a as a global culture. And and in some cases, it's a technical issue in that Google needs to stop platforming science denial like like anytime you're ready, Google uh, on YouTube, etc. just get get cracking on that. Um, we as the individual people can both deplatform the trolls, but also I think you know I will have conversations with people on my on my channel who who may disagree with me or disagree with science, and I'm not trying to convince them. I'm trying to convince the people who are watching. I'm trying to convince the thousands of people who are who are on the fence or who hold some of those beliefs but not all, who are interested parties but are not completely convinced either way to show what a rational, calm response to science denial looks like. You're doing it the right way. I mean, I that sounds great. And I think we'll get there. Like, I think what feels like this is never going to end, that this this – this chaos is never going to end. It will end. That that we will come up with yeah. a combination of technical solution, behavioral solution, and people will just get exhausted. At we'll figure this out. I yeah. mean, the, the trouble is that the stakes are now higher, right? Um, because the consequences of disinformation spread faster. But I mean, I, I like the way you put it. That, that very well done. I mean, you look at the Gutenberg Bible, you look at the invention of the um, uh, radio, TV. I mean, at first they were used by propagandists, right? People figure out, how can I make money on this? Yeah. How can I use this to convince people to, you know, buy my product? Sometimes their product is ideology. And it takes a little while to sort that out. And in the meantime, there's a lot of collateral damage, as we're seeing. Now the collateral damage is for democracy, yeah. you know, and science and, you know, all these bigger things that, that we care about. And so the stakes are incredibly high. Um, one of the most compelling books that I have read recently is uh, by a, a friend of mine, uh, Andy Norman, and it's called Mental Immunity. And it, he's really captured, I think, this zeitgeist of what is going to save us. Whether it'll save us in time, I don't know. But it's this idea that the mind has an immune system. And it's pretty good at doing its job, except when it's overwhelmed with disinformation. Um, and, you know, it's like asking the body's immune system to fight off anthrax. I mean, you know, we can't, can't do it alone, but we can train ourselves. One is through you know, inoculation theory, pre-bunking, as we talked about, you know, before, um, uh, that, and, and so he's, uh, invented a, a think tank and in full disclosure, I'm, I'm part of it. I'm a board member called Circe, the uh, cognitive immunology research collaborative. And we're working on, um, how to get people in government in, you know, national security in public health, educators, journalists, you know, all of these folks um, to understand what these principles are so that we can kind of give a little boost because I, 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 to, to stick with your infection uh, uh, analogy, if you try to convince somebody once they've already heard disinformation, you're trying to heal the sick. Yeah. And sometimes it's really hard to heal the sick. Better to inoculate them and keep them from getting sick in the first place. Yeah. And so, again, that takes time. You've got to get the word out. You know, we're behind because, you know, here's the the Internet doing its thing. But, I mean, we are figuring it out. Congress moves in the United States moves so slowly. But they're starting to have hearings on disinformation and what the tech companies might need to do. Um, some great proposals have come forward about 
Well, these algorithms seem a little dangerous, don't they? I mean, because they're to promote engagement, but by the way, they end up promoting disinformation. So why isn't there some peer review involved here? Could there be government oversight um, or, or even just more transparency about what these, uh, I mean, we shouldn't have to read about it through investigative journalism to find out, oh yeah, you know, didn't you know that, um, uh, you know, that, um, uh, what, what was the, the platform that wasn't, wasn't Facebook, uh, but the other one owned by them. It was oh, like Instagram. teenage girls, right. Instagram, yeah. right? <clears throat> so we find that out through a whistleblower. We find it out through investigative journalism, but they knew, right? And they knew what they're, uh, what they were doing. Um, they, Facebook dialed back their uh, engagement, their disinformation. It's the same thing just before the 2020 election. Well, guess what? Then they dialed it back and we got January 6th. Now I'm not claiming it's cause and effect, but I mean, they really do have some role here and people are beginning to wake up to this. I, I'm with you. I think that we are now, so the way you characterized it, you know, the the revolution that came in 1450, whatever it was with the printing press, the, you know, the Gutenberg revolution, the industrial revolution. I think we're now in the middle of a technological revolution, just as you said, that people will look back on and say they did what? How, how was that possible? <laughs> how was that? Yeah. How did it might be that called to happen? The, it might be called the information revolution, but it's really in some ways the disinformation revolution. I think that's the biggest I, I personally, I mean, I agree with you. I like the way you put it. I think that the biggest threat to human society in the coming decade is disinformation because all of those special interests have figured out how to weaponize these channels of sharing information. And they're using it, as I said, to attack science, democracy, all of these other really valuable things that... I, I just, I don't know how we, well, in, in one of these government hearings recently, I remember there was uh, uh, Joan Donovan from Harvard was one of the expert witnesses who was testifying. And she said the greatest threat was uh, to society today was misinformation at scale. And its consequence was democracy's demise. Yeah. And that scares the hell out of you. Yeah, absolutely. It's not just science. It's all of these other things that are that are uh, under threat. And I, I mean, I think the upside of this connected society are just our legion. I mean, we, I, I won't, I wouldn't go back, right? Even th with the downside of all the disinformation, like the fact that I can get all this information and educate myself and connect with other people, etc. The, they're, they make my life so much better on so many ways. It's the downsides. I was, I was talking with a friend today about about happiness actually and saying that you know i don't seek happiness i just figure out how to remove ha sadness i don't know yeah. how to be happy i only know how to be less sad and le being less sad <laughs> yeah, but i help. but i end up being happy because yeah it turns out the things that make you removing the things that make you sad end up making you happy um and we have a very you know very clear very you know we know what they are and i think that it's the same thing that like interconnectivity, the ability to learn from each other, the ability to meet people, make new friends across the internet, to collaborate on projects, to learn and discover, to find out the best way to to boil an egg. Um, these make our lives so much better. The downsides are this, the, the ability for people to try and get in there, bad actors, disinformation, et cetera. And we can just- How to control that? that down. I mean, yeah. If we can just figure out, I mean, look, this is not a mystery. Um, there are, uh, I, the example I use here is Wikipedia. Yeah. Remember all the people who used to complain about Wikipedia because anybody could edit it and there was all this disinformation. And then, you know, the, the wreckers, they call them, right? And then the folks at Wikipedia decided, you know, we've got a really valuable resource here and we're not going to let the wreckers wreck it. And so they kept it open. They kept it transparent, but they now have some vetting, which looks to me a lot like peer review in science. And I mean, people are now saying that Wikipedia is a model for how the internet as a whole might work. And um, it's, it, it's really, you know, quite remarkable. And so, and I think of that because like you, I wouldn't go back, but I don't buy at all the argument that's very popular 
and sounds, you know, very cool. When people say, oh, the solution to uh, a bad speech is good speech, or the solution to disinformation is free speech. I'm in favor of free speech, but free speech does not mean giving a microphone to a liar. It doesn't mean that private companies can't deplatform um, the liars. I mean, they, the Center for Countering Digital Hate found um, in 2019 that 65% of the anti-vax propaganda on Twitter was due to 12 people. Can we please deplatform those 12 people? I mean, that that is that is that is the 20th century equivalent of screaming fire in a crowded theater. You know, can can we please stop that? Well, people people provide this. You know, they say that if you deplatform somebody from your from like if someone writes a comment that is conspiracy theory on my website and I delete their post, I am ruining their free speech. And the, you know, obviously the equivalent is that you invite somebody over to your house for dinner and they just spend the the dinner time lecturing you about about uh, climate change denial that you can go, you know, what? it's time for you to leave now. I'm not, this isn't the conversation I want to have. But I think it what the digital platforms are doing takes the analogy even farther. It is the equivalent of you not only letting this person rant at you, it's you setting up an impromptu classroom, inviting the, right. the neighborhood children to sit down exactly. and watch this person berate you for a couple of hours. And then, and then you hand out learning material for them to go home. And That's, publicize it on Twitter so everybody and publicize, can publish. Yeah. And right. so the yeah, and the algorithms are 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 gasoline on this on this fire. And at the very least, like like I would be okay with YouTube allowing anybody to post this kind of stuff on YouTube. What I need them to stop doing is encouraging and promoting it because yeah, they, they are they, accelerating it. They're accelerating exactly. And I mean, yeah, you're so eloquent on that because that is. I think that's fundamentally right. I mean, of course, we all know that the First Amendment protects us against government incursion of our speech, not, you know, private companies can, you know, kick you off their stage, deplatform you, do whatever they want. The analogy I use, you know, even for the people who think that free speech should include more than that, I think of something like this. Okay, so you may think that we have to give the Ku Klux Klan a parade permit if they want to have a parade because the government can't deny them a parade and you know they're a hate group and you know we we can protest but i believe in a government that you know allows free speech some people would say that what they wouldn't agree to is to help the clan hand out their flyers <laughs> advertising right. the rally yeah, yeah, like- and that's what's happening now with this information, right? It's not just the, the the question of are we going to allow free speech? It's are we going to amplify that speech yes. so that it reaches millions of people and has horrible real world consequences? And and the so I think that the free speech argument is in some ways been misused by people as august as Barack Obama who a few years back said, well, you know, I just think we need more speech. No, that's not how misinformation and disinformation work. You never catch up. That's what the 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 folks working for the GRU are hoping you'll say, because that's one of their principles of information warfare, right? That That's not how you, you fight disinformation, by allowing them to pour out all their lies and then try to debunk it. That that's that's not going to work. It's I mean it is kind of digital vandalism. And back to another analogy where you've got a you know you've got your house and you're fine with people free speech, but are you okay with people coming up and spray painting signage on yeah. the walls of your house? Like now the 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 difference might come in this: if somebody in good faith believes something and they want to have a debate, <coughs> there there are forums for them to do that. And, you know, they will attract whomever they attract. It's it's this ability, as you put it earlier, to identify who the trolls are. The people who are not really making the argument in good faith, the people who are um, getting something out of it. But I suppose, too, then what do you do about the believers who, you know, believe the weaponized disinformation? I mean, it's, it's, really, it's really hard. I, I'm much more 
I'm much more with Wikipedia now with their philosophy. I'm I'm with the idea that you got to put a lid on it and not let the records take over, have somebody do the the vetting and you know try your best to get good information out there. It it, it just imagine imagine science if 20% of the scientists committed fraud. The whole thing would collapse. Yeah. Yeah. Right? That's kind of what we have now with yeah. the disinformation revolution. Well, Lee, it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation and a lot of stuff that I can put to work immediately. Um, if people want to find out more information about you, what is the best way to do that? Uh, go to my website, leemcintyrebooks.com. It's got a little biography of me, uh, links to my books, uh, current events, uh, other things I've written, just kind of anything you want to know is there on my website, leemcintyrebooks.com. And your new book is How to Talk to a uh, Science Denier. How to Talk to a Science Denier. Yeah, it's, it's uh, yes, that's my, I, I've got, you said new, I've got another one in press, but I'm not ready to talk about it okay. yet. That's coming out next year. And if you have me back sometime, I'll talk about that one, but I'm not quite ready yet. That sounds great. Um, and uh, and do let me know if we do solve this problem, come on back and, and let me know. In the meantime, absolutely. Right on. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Lee. It was great to talk to you and, and good luck with this. Thank you. You as well. Thanks for having <laughs> me on. All right. 